Okay, well, good morning, New Hope. Oh, this is good. We're ready to go. Um, heat pumps are off, right, guys? All good to go? All heaters are off, right? Well, it's all these BTUs in the, in the building. All this hot. Firstly, I just want to say this to you. Have I told you lately that I love you? I want you to know that. Jesus loved us with a love that surpasses understanding. This morning we're going to continue to read and to learn in his word what the chief of all the apostles wrote. And Father, I pray with fresh eyes we'd learn from your word, but not only that, that we'd realize that you live within us. And Lord, your heart is a heart of love, especially towards those that are called by your name. Even though you love everybody, not everybody loves you back the same amount. But Lord, you've called us to love. Help us love in word and deed. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bibles, I want you to open them to 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. I'm going to read the Scriptures. And then I'm going to go back and I'm going to explain probably one of the naughtiest parts of the New Testament. Verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all. The just for the unjust. In order that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, narrow is the way. That is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, Baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. May God bless the reading of his word. The year is AD 200. The place is Rome. And after fasting for several days and praying and preparing his heart for the rite of initiation and dedication to a triune God, the young believer's moment had finally arrived. And with all the excitement that would normally anticipate a wedding, you remember that, a wedding celebration, a small group of believers gathered with their pastor and a young convert to the Christian faith steps forward into the water as the congregation await the proclamation of the vows, the confession of faith. That was the scene. And they confessed the same essential truths. You may have seen this before. I believe, important words, in God 
the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and of earth. And then Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into Hades. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. And from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian, some versions say Catholic Church. Not to be confused with the Roman Catholic Church. The communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, and the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. Amen. Now, when a new believer back then confessed this creed out loud, that's how they remembered the essential truths of the Christian faith. They remembered that. And they affirmed this creed as their confession of faith. And then they were accepted by the church. Then, when they said that, then they will be baptized. They go into the water in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then they'd rise up from the waters of baptism as full members of the church, validated by the rite of baptism. Now, fast forward many centuries. When I was a young Christian, I attended a church where the congregation recited the Apostles' Creed every week. Anybody been in a church like that before? Okay. Now, within months, this is all new to me, I'd memorized it. But reciting it was not the same as understanding it. Very different. And the minister never explained it. Unlike the second century believers, I didn't have the luxury of a three-year training period to clarify the rich theology of that creed. So when it got to the part that said, he descended into Hades, I go, what the heck's that? And I wasn't even sure what that meant at all. In fact, some forms of the creed say he descended into hell. That's what some say. And finally, I got the opportunity at seminary. Some, sh some light was shed on that dark corner, on that dim corner of that creed. What actually happened, the activity of Jesus during the hours between his death and his resurrection, his bodily resurrection, the same physicality. So while in 1 Peter 3.18 explains some aspects of the Apostles' Creed, it also brought up two very big questions. Now let's take a look at the context to help us better grasp its content. Now Peter had previously been talking, remember, about a Christian's appropriate response to unjust treatment, be that from the government, be that from the employer, or be that even in marriage. Remember that was a, the context. And a very important point in interpreting the Bible is always make sure you understand about the context. Last week, you'll recall he's just finished saying that sometimes believers who live their lives well and virtuously can still sometimes incur unjust treatment as a result. And we saw that in 3.14 of 1 Peter. 
Nevertheless, Peter said this, as he was wrapped up last week to get the context right, 1 Peter 3.17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, today, so we've dealt with the past and how we got there. Today, we're going to focus not on government, not on business, not on marriage, but on Christ. This is how we've got to where we are in Peter's thinking. We're going to focus on Christ who exemplifies unjust treatment. Unjust treatment. To achieve God's purposes, his triumphant purposes. So today, in this section, 318 through um, 22, it's Christ alone will be our focus of our attention. Now, first, in verse 18, we have a clear, concise statement of the gospel. In one verse... A clear, concise statement. Here it is in verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he may bring us to God. That's the purpose of it all. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So circle in that verse. Christ died for our sins there. Second thing to circle is once for all. See, Christ died in place of sinners, the just for the unjust. That's the substitutionary atonement. That's what's going on right there. Why did he do all that? There's the next part. Circle, to bring us to God. That's the divine purpose. It's reconciliation between a holy God and sinful man. That is the purpose of the gospel. And then, the fifth thing you'll look at there, Christ's resurrection's in there. You're going to have Christ right, risen to, made alive in the Spirit. So here we have, one, the need. What's, why would he even do that? Because of our sin. Number two, you can see the complete payment. This is why works don't add anything to the, to the, uh, to the process of salvation. It's complete payment. De- Christ's death in our place. He paid the lot, the full bill. It's all sufficient. There's only one bill to pay. And he paid it all, uh, once and for all. No more residual payments to be made. And the outcome, what was the outcome of all this? The outcome was access to God. Awesome. Now, it doesn't get much clearer than this. In fact, these are the facts of the gospel. This is the good news for lost sinners. And the central theme of the passage is Christ's unjust suffering, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. Now, I thought to make it a little a little easier by basically putting this in a graphic. It's a V-shaped work that Christ does. Here it is here. He starts off as a glorified Son of God. And then he's wrapped in flesh. That's the incarnation. He steps down, becomes lower than the angels. See, we've got this wrong thinking that to be great, we go on up all the time. Actually, Jesus stepped down into greatness. Then the Lord honored him. Then we've got the passion. That, that, that's another word for the suffering, the last week of Christ's life. Then we have the crucifixion. Then we have the descent into Hades. And then we're going back the other way now. Proclamation to those, to those fallen angels. Then it goes to the resurrection. Then he commissions the disciples and us. Then he's exalted. And then finally he's glorified. So it's a V-shape work of Christ is going on here. So this V-shaped work of Christ gives us hope as we live and suffer sometimes like Jesus did as followers of Christ, as strangers in a hostile world. Now we've been spiritually united in Christ's death and resurrection 
And we're being physically identified with that spiritual reality through the rite of baptism. So we can look forward with absolute hope that like Jesus, we will be resurrected and glorified when the short life is over. Now, the New Testament's emphasis on Christ's death and resurrection generally focus, right, on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, right? That's what it normally focuses on. But here, the only place, well, specifically in the New Testament, the Spirit of God moves Peter to briefly discuss the work of Jesus on Saturday. Between his death and his resurrection. Verse 19. In which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. Present tense. Who were once disobedient. Hmm, I wonder when that was. When the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark. Pat, we needed you there then. You and the boys. Get it done faster. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now the passage this passage has been tackled by many a fine scholar over the years. Now, before we dive into a very murky passage, I want to give you a principle that you should always remember. It'll keep you out of trouble. And it says, the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. Do not forget that. The main things in the scriptures are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things. That will prevent you and I giving undue preoccupation to portions of Scripture which we may never fully unravel this side of eternity until we see Jesus face to face. Okay? Now, you should also know, before we dive into this, that Martin Luther, you've all heard of Martin Luther? He was the great reformer. He was a pretty good theologian, actually. <laughs> and very courageous. This is what he said. A wonderful text is this. Um, a more obscure passage than any other in the New Testament. So I do not know for certain just what Peter meant. Now, with that caveat, <laughs> let's dive in to the text and ask three questions. First question we're going to ask is, who were the spirits to whom Christ made his proclamation? Who were they? Hmm. Two, when did Christ make this proclamation? And three, what was the content of this proclamation? So number one, who are the spirits to whom Christ made his proclamation? Well, in a sentence, Jesus proclaimed the triumph of his resurrection to fallen angels. Jesus proclaimed the triumph of his resurrection to fallen angels. We can see smatterings of this through Paul's writing, Colossians 2.15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, this is interesting, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So Jesus made a public display of demonic forces. The fallen angels are typified as those who instigated Instigated gross immorality in the days of Noah. And you can read back. I haven't got time to read that, but I'm going to give you the reference for you to go read this. It's in Genesis 6, 1 through 4. It was very distasteful. Horrendous. Horrendous. 
Now, 2 Peter says that these four angels were literally cast into prison. The actual word, I went and looked at it in Greek, is Tartarus. Tartarus. That's a place of confinement prior to judgment, the judgment that all earth will face. Tartarus is the prison mentioned here. 2 Peter 2.4 even talks a little about this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until when? When? The judgment. So this is this place. That's what he's talking about. These scriptures are referencing the angels that sinned with the ensuing judgment of the flood by God in the days of Noah. And again, one other quick scripture is Jude 1.6. When you, it's redundant saying, yeah, there's only one chapter, right, in Jude? <laughs> and the angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept them, where? In eternal bonds, under darkness, for the judgment of that great day. What a day that's going to be, like none other. So number two, when... Did Jesus make this proclamation? Well, let me just say it quickly in a sentence. Between Jesus' resurrection and uh, his crucifixion and resurrection, he was made alive in the Spirit. And he made proclamation to these fallen angels. Christ's proclamation on Sunday revealed that all of their efforts to prevent the seed of a woman crushing the head of the serpent were in vain. I've said many times before, and some of you may have not heard that before, but if you, if you have, please forgive me. There's a prophecy immediately after the fall, and it says the seed of the woman will crush the head of the, Satan, of, Satan, of the serpent. When Every other time in the scriptures, when the seed is mentioned, it's clearly mentioned of a man. How can you have a seed of a woman? That's a prophecy of the virgin birth. The only one. So right then, God knew. God wasn't caught, but that's what it was talking about there. That was a victory. The cross, not defeat. And the victory was achieved through the crucifixion. Number three, what was the content? What was said by Jesus? Now, this is where there were a number of lines of thinking. However, I think I lean towards one side. Well, first of all, it was a proclamation of victory. Not preaching the gospel. And I'll tell you why that doesn't rub with the rest of the scriptures. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. There are no second chances posthumous. No second chances after you're dead. That's it. Boom. No second chances. Christ. Okay. Christ announced when he went down there his finished work on the cross. Finished. It is finished, he said up here. It is finished down there. And by doing so, he was declaring his victory. Therefore, to, to quickly answer those three questions again, who were the spirits to whom Christ made his proclamation? They were fallen angels. They were the spirits. Two, when did Christ make that proclamation? That proclamation was made between Jesus' death and his resurrection. And number three, what was the content? The content of Christ's message was to proclaim his victory to the fallen angels. So, let's pick it up from 19b. He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Those eight 
in Noah's family were the only people in that era to make it through the flood. Narrow is the way. It was because of the ark that Noah and his family were brought safely through the water. But Peter is highlighting the symbolic significance of the flood for believers. The same waters that buried and cut off life, brought judgment and death. Also, same water lifted eight humans and their animals to safety. It's a vivid picture of salvation. Similarly, Simeon, so there's good and bad in the same thing. Here's the deal. Simeon, in Luke 2, 34, says, And Simeon blessed him and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall. Did you hear that? For the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And the sign that is to be opposed. There's quite a demarcation here. Some will stumble over him. Like the water, Jesus will be both a blessing and a curse to individuals. Depending upon how they regarded him. Depends. Jesus will call some to fall because he would be a stone of stumbling. You read that in Isaiah 8, 14 through 15. While to others, he's a cornerstone upon which they will build their lives. That's Isaiah 28, 16, the cornerstone. What is he for you? Is he your cornerstone or your stumbling stone? He would become the means of destruction for those who oppose the redemptive plan of God. Those who don't want anything to God, anything to do with him, he will be a stumbling stone. But he's a source of salvation to those who submit to him. Now then, Peter begins his statement concerning Christians' baptism by tying it directly to the analogy of Noah's family who were brought safely through the waters. Verse 21. Second knotty issue on the surface, but it's not. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Question. How does the water of Noah's day correspond to the way baptism saves, in inverted commas, you in the New Testament? Well, the waters of the flood were a means of judging Sinful human race, allowing Noah and his family to escape from that wicked world. To begin a new life after the floodwaters had receded. Now in the same way, the water of baptism represents a complete break from the old sinful lifestyle and the beginning of a new life as a believer. That's what it symbolizes. And water baptism provides a vivid picture of our response to the gospel and the salvation it brings. The water of baptism, like the flood waters, portrays death, which is a penalty for sin. It's a magnificent object lesson, representing the believer's descent into the water, representing the death and the burial with Christ, and the ascent from the water, illustrating Christ's resurrection into a new kind of life. Now, baptism is not merely, as he says there, bathing a muddy body like after a rugby game. Get this, water, this filth off me. It's not that. 
It's not the removal of dirt from the flesh, as the verse says. Baptism is an outward ceremony, much like a wedding ceremony, that symbolizes an inward, deep inward commitment. That includes public confession and commitment to live the new life redeemed from sin. So, be clear here. The water of baptism does not cause a person to have new life or a good conscience. But it is a response to God based on a conscience that's already been purified and pricked by the Holy Spirit through faith. So just as Jesus Christ proclaimed his triumph over sin and death through his own suffering and death on the cross, believers also proclaim their triumph over sin and death through water baptism. The water of baptism itself does not save a person. Did you hear that? This is not an old heresy called baptismal regeneration. That's the work of the Holy Spirit to save a person. Who he baptizes in the Spirit and saves a believer by faith apart from water baptism. The thief on the cross was not baptized. But he was saved. Today you will be with me in paradise. But it is God's normative will for every Christian who calls himself to be a Christian to be baptized by immersion as the word imports. It means baptism. Go under the water and come back up out of the water. Every single baptism in the New Testament is a baptism where a person, look what Jesus, down into the water in the River Jordan, back up out of it. Look at the Ethiopian eunuch, down into the water, back up out of it. Look at the Philippian jailer, and onwards and forwards. And that, by the way, was at 2 o'clock in the morning. Some people wrongly procrastinate in baptism and live, oh, I've got to be right, I've got to do all that. The Bible says, believe and be baptized. Now, Peter himself saw that water baptism could not be viewed as a necessary cause of a person's salvation. We see this here in Acts 10. While Peter was speaking these words, it's not in your outline, but it's up here. The Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out in the Gentiles also. Then Peter answered, Surely! No one can refuse the water to be baptized to those who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? See the order? They got saved, then they got baptized. And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of, the Father, in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, when sinners believe the gospel of Christ's person and work, they express their faith by reenacting their association with Christ through baptism. So when we come up out of the water, we are committed to serving our living Savior who ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God. You'll see that in 1 Peter 3.22. Our living Lord who sent his Spirit to live within us and who he has authority over all powers in heaven and earth and Hades and Jesus provides us, his followers, with a certain living hope in hurtful times. Now, the fact of baptism doesn't save us, it just symbolizes that salvation has already taken place. That is the correct biblical definition. Now, as we wrap this up, I want to leave you with two pragmatic principles. They're axiomatic. Now, if you get this, it will change your life. Number one, when Unjust suffering seems unbearable. Remember the cross. Remember the cross. 
He is the ultimate example of unjust suffering. Philippians 2, 6. Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taken on the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness, some versions say, of mere men. Nothing like the glorified king of the universe who built the entire universe. A very poor, in fact, when we think about Jesus with beard and sandals, it is a very poor reflection of his true identity. But he couldn't come here in his full glory. We couldn't stand to look at his face. Even when Moses went up the mountain, having been with God, his face was so bright, he put a veil over it. So when God came to earth, he wrapped himself in flesh. Because no man can see God and live. And being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. And then it tacks on this little phrase, even death on the cross, which is the very worst form of death you could hope for. The other day when it belted my finger with a hammer at a full squash serve velocity, let me tell you, one of the things I thought about, I thought, Jesus, I have no conception for the agony that you went through for me. And this is a piffling little finger. Jesus knows our suffering and pain. And because of his love, he entered into them with us. He didn't stand aloof in heaven. So you guys sorted out. He came down not into us. And he entered into our pain and living as a human. He entered into that as suffering and pain because of his love. Number two, when the fear of death steals your peace, remember the resurrection. I believe in God the Father. Almighty maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, our Lord who was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Now each of those statements in the Apostles' Creed is a priceless heirloom handed down to us carefully through the church from generation to generation. The manifold wisdom of God is made known through the church. But the most important part of this entire creed are the first two words. I Believe. That simple but sincere statement of faith makes all the difference in this world and the next. Let's pray. Father, when we feel like these people that Peter was talking to, the splinters of unjust suffering, would you help us remember the cross? And when the fear of death threatens to steal our peace, would you help us, Holy Spirit, remember the resurrection? Holy Spirit, help us to dwell on the wonder of the fact 
that you want to have communion with us daily. Help us not to take this beautiful truth and take it for granted and give our minds to other, other manners. Father, may we this week communion with you and enjoy fellowship with your Holy Spirit who lives within us. Help us glorify Christ in everything we do this week. 